I am going to save some of your listeners a huge amount of money today, and they're going to be so happy they heard this podcast. You have no idea how many sophisticated investors get burned on this, myself included. So I had decided to shift some of my 401k or IRA money. If you're going to self-direct that, you can only self-direct that into other people's deals. So you can't put that into your own deals. And the way I'm going to save some of your listeners money is whatever you do, do not ever convert anything to a Roth IRA. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments to help them build their legacy. We do this by providing insight and access to successful fund managers and investors across multiple asset classes. And I'm your host, Pascal Wagner. And today we have on the show, uh, Dave Homiak. And uh, welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me, Pascal. Yeah, so I'm going to give a little bit of background on Dave. Um, so over Dave's career, he was a calibration specialist for General Motors and then decided to replace his engineering income with real estate. Uh, he accomplished that in 11 months by buying short-term rental cabins in the Smokies. Uh, and the story is actually pretty pretty awesome when you... Uh, I hope he gets to explain it a little bit more here on the show. Um, when, but... It, uh, He's very passionate about helping others achieve financial freedom. He's helped roughly 80 clients identify and purchase cash flowing properties in the Smokies since 2021. So that's pretty good in, uh, in a two year, I mean, less than a two year time span. And, uh, today he's the owner of the Rockstar VAs, uh, and it's a virtual assistant placement company that helps individual com- uh, individuals and companies find, find high quality overseas talent. He's 58 lives in Ann Arbor, uh, and is married with three kids. Uh, he's been investing in private investments in since 2018 uh, at the age of 53 and has invested over $500,000 in seven deals, including a development in the Smokies. Uh, so my first question to kind of start out with is, Dave, what is a calibration specialist? So a calibration specialist is, it could actually be engine calibration specialist. So I did i made the cruise control run smoothly i did a lot of diagnostics um and and basically i i started out actually at rolls royce in indianapolis and then i jumped to chrysler and then i jumped to detroit diesel and then i went to general motors so i worked for those four people making their engines run smoothly and keeping their engines in compliance and and like i'm like are you in like these test wind tunnels and test facilities? Are you actually on the road sitting in the driver or passenger seat or? Excellent question. So it starts out with somebody that isn't me that runs an engine on a dynamometer and it's just the engine itself. And then what I do is I get the engine after it's actually in a car. So I'm normally driving either a car that's one or two years from production. Uh, sometimes it's in the, the camoed uh, you know, it's all blacked out stuff like that. And I have my computer on the passenger seat or on a stand on the passenger seat and I'm just getting the engine to run smoothly and stuff like that. So yeah, one of the best jobs in the world, because a lot of the testing that you do is in just outrageously gorgeous places. So you're testing in summit County, which is Breckenridge, uh, Vale area for high altitude stuff. You're testing in death Valley for heat. So you're just in these outrageously gorgeous and they, you know, 
they ship the cars out, fly you out. You just jump in the car and drive them. And then you drive a lot in Michigan too on at the proving grounds, which is also a fun, a fun experience to go on tracks and, and, and get to do stuff that you normally wouldn't get to do on the road. So very blessed to have that experience. Yeah. You can just tell by your face lighting up when you talk about it. Uh, but at some point you decided to move on and, and move into, into real estate and kind of start this other journey. What prompted that? How did that happen? And I want to kind of paint the picture of, you know, you moving on from your career, um, to then making all these different investments. And I think one of the things I want to let your listeners know is it's okay to be like really nervous and start really late. Cause I had a lot of anxiety. I was like, what if I make a mistake? What if I lose money? Oh my goodness, this could be scary. Like I was a S and P 500 index type of guy. I wasn't even a bet on an individual stock. That was way too risky. Right. Um, and and what I ended up doing though is I ended up getting on bigger pockets and just reading about different asset classes. And I just said it's time for me to get out of engineering. Wasn't really happy with the current management that I had. And I actually set the goal of so the first the first thing I had to do is say, how much of my income do what would I need to replace to feel comfortable walking out? And I was like, 40%, 60%, 80%. I'm like, I don't know. I'm scared, right? Because that's yeah. the way I am. So I'm like, how about 100%? If you do 100%, can you walk out? I'm like, okay, that's safe. So I'm like, I'm going to replace 100%. Well, how long should I take? Well, I'll take two years to do it. And actually was going to get into multifamily. Didn't know if I could do it in two years or less, just because that seemed more challenging. And then I saw the short-term rental stuff and I had done some stuff with uh, the guy we were talking about, actually, right before the podcast in Austin, some short-term rental I did the financing and he ran the thing, he and his wife. And um, and so I felt comfortable with that. And when I researched markets, Smoky Mountains popped up as like an amazing market to go into. So I ended up, you know, three months after the decision, bought my first place, six months, second place, nine months, third place. And after that, I was financially independent because the cash flow was just, ins I didn't know 65% cash on cash was abnormal i just oh just this is just you buy stuff and this is all just sitting here on bigger pockets for anybody to buy uh should have bought a couple more didn't realize that i you know, don't stop at three if you ever find 65 percent cash on cash just trust yeah, me i mean i think that's a it's i mean whenever you tell me these stories about uh, so, so for anyone listening i mean dave is a deal finder uh i i have i like to think i can find deals but dave has has this insane ability and whenever we sit down and talk about it I, i'm just trying to absorb absorb it from him but uh okay so you started buying you started getting into real estate investing and uh from there uh you know eventually you started uh, making investments into funds and syndications why and how did that transition happen well, the first fund that I invested with, I I didn't know, I, I still kind of wanted to balance things and, 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 you know, hedge my bets, so to speak. Like what, and, and quite honestly, when I first bought in the Smokies, the, the very first place that I bought, it was, if this goes horribly wrong and nobody ever rents it out another night ever, what's the worst that happens? And I think that's a really good way to look at any investment. And I ended up paying about three fifteen dollars for that cabin. Um, and I said, I'll lose like 30,000. I can blow it out for like 280 or, you know, whatever. So I always think it's really good to look at the downside and that's the downside in any deal, whether it's passive or active. So the first deal I did, 
we were talking about, I did it with somebody with a very public persona. Uh, his name's Joe Fairless. He runs best ever uh, real estate event in Colorado every February, has best ever podcast. And the reason I invested with him wasn't due to my incredible level of due diligence. It was because he had this event and I could show up and I could yell at him if he lost my money when he was on stage. I figured he'd be highly motivated to have people not show up and and say mean things to him when he was on stage running this event. So that is one of the main reasons I invested with him. Investment went really well. He happened to pick Dallas, which is a really good market to pick. It was hard to mess up on anything. But um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I really, you know, I was betting way more on the jockey than I was on the horse in that one. And, you know, I've done several other deals since then, two different apartment syndications that I invested in last year. Both I like relatively hot markets where momentum is going to carry. So one was in Jacksonville, one was in um, Phoenix, and those two went really well, are, are going fine so far. Um, and then I was telling you, one of the other places I invested was on a land syndication deal. And that was really interesting. And I and I felt comfortable more investing on land where most people didn't. And a lot of guys turned this guy down. Uh, and this is uh, Victor Minash. He runs Real Estate Expresso podcast, Daily Dose, five to 15 minute podcast every morning he comes out with. A lot of times he's three or four weeks ahead of what the news cycle is. He sees the date and he just, yep, this is it. And just really, I, I love his mind, former engineer, so I get along with him well on that. But basically what he ended up doing is he got um, 1,700 acres under contract right next to Colorado Springs. So if you look at Colorado Springs, there's Colorado Springs, then there's this big block just east of Colorado Springs. And it's like if Colorado Springs is going to go anywhere, that's where it's going to go. And bottom line is he got it under contract at about 10,000 an acre. And if he can get it entitled, which means annexed into Colorado Springs and get the water in the sewer and electric and stuff like that, it should be worth about 200,000 an acre. So I invested in that. So that is a way riskier deal than a value add for an apartment complex. But it is kind of my kind of mad money, right? My, you know, the other really important uh, thing for investing is I think never invest more than 5% of your net worth in any one deal. And so I was able to invest in that. It was less than 5% of the net worth. That's more kind of like the, we're going to swing for the fence and get the home run. And if, if, if this comes back, then basically I ha I'll have enough income coming back in yearly. It should be, if it, goes the way he's believing it should, it should return 70% on your money for the next 15 years every year. Dave, how come you didn't get me into this deal? I, there's a couple <laughs> guys I told him. There's a couple guys I know that did get it. Uh, and I mean, and if it works out, great. And it might not work out. And I'm like, I don't, I, I'm super, super, super afraid of losing anybody's money or even telling anybody. Yeah. But yeah, and a lot like, of these deals are, are, you know, they, when you see them, the sponsors, they have these crazy projections and it's, it's hard to tell what's too good to be true and what isn't. And one thing that I liked about Victor though, and, and I was having lunch with Victor and his pitch deck didn't have this piece of information in it. And, but I liked that I knew him and I could talk to him and basically what wasn't in his pitch deck but that was true is 
He had it under contract for a year and the contract stated, if I can get it entitled within the year, I'll buy it. If I can't get it entitled within the year, I'll close on it for this price. But about a month or two before that, he called the guy and said, it doesn't look like I'm going to have it entitled before this ends, before the contract ends. Can I get an extension? And the guy said, well, I'm not going to give you an extension. And he goes, well, why not? And he goes, well, because I have another offer on it. And, and Victor's like, would you mind telling me what the other offer is? And he goes, well, it's a little bit more than double what you're offering. So it's like, this is about as sure of it. You know, you're like, well, we could just double the money. And, you know, so I mean, something's going to happen with it that's good, I think. But yeah. So, so in that sense, it kind of like you thought about your risk exposure and what's the downside. And that's like, okay, worst case scenario, there's other people who want the land. Exactly. So should be able to get the money out. At some point, of course, Victor wants to entitle it and, and do the 20x, but we'll see whether that works or not. So, so take me, take me back to before you made this investment with Joe, Joe Fairless. So, you know, you had to make the decision to go away from this life of being an S&P index guy to investing in a private investment that is, you know, if you've never done it before, it could be seem new and much riskier and, and confusing. Like wh why, why make that transition? I was listening to a lot of bigger pockets. And I mean, the one thing you obviously don't have, well, at least the way I do S&P 500 is you don't have leverage. There was a lot of guys with leverage and there was a lot of guys when the stock market or when, excuse me, when the real estate market was going up, it's like you're, you do 10% down or 20% down, you're, you're 10X or 5X. So why would you not do that if you're picking the best stuff? And it's like, okay, maybe I should try picking the best stuff. And I mean, quite honestly, I think a lot of it was I had a decent, you know, I, I still have a decent amount of money in my 401k that was, you know, built up over the years from, you know, 20s to 50s when I work for all these automotive companies. So, I mean, it's a little, I can still be, I, I look back on a lot of the investing stuff that I've done and a lot of the deals I've done. And I lost $3,000 one time. And I was, I, I wasn't that upset about it because I've made enough money on other stuff. But like, I, I'm actually really risk adverse in my opinion, which I have, I have some uh, certified financial planner friend, one in particular I'm thinking of that's like, you're insane. You're, you're gonna spend all your money on real estate it's all gonna collapse and you're gonna be you know I'm like dude it's not like that so everybody has their own risk tolerance and that's one of the things when people say should i invest in i have several people that will ask me what they should invest in and that's the first thing is you know the the one big test and i still remember this for it's it's how to make the most money in real estate and basically the guy said buy as much as you can and when you can't sleep at night, sell the last thing you bought. He said, but keep, basically, you want to be leveraged to the max. It will go up eventually, even if there's a downturn, as long as you're cash on cash, as long as you're breaking even on whatever your mortgage is, you're fine for roughly for forever, as long as you don't have a huge CapEx event. So I just think it's it's even more fascinating to me how many people I told about the Smokies that didn't invest. So in, in 2018, things were going really well. 20, February 2019 took the buyout. I told at least 25 people, like, you have to invest in the Smokies. Would you like to guess how many people invested in the Smokies? I'm going to guess it's close to zero. Zero, exactly. Yeah. Zero. And then after another year, and I was really excited, they're like, oh, my gosh. So then a couple people finally said, man, I should have listened to you last year. And I'm like, oh, there's and, and, and some of them invested, and they did really well. So, 
it's just, but I mean, I still have friends that are like, either I can't do it or my wife is nervous for me to do it or whatever. And that's fine. I mean, it's, it's not for everybody. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing here, correct me if I'm wrong, is you started getting on bigger pockets and hearing from your community about different types of asset classes that you could invest into. You talked about the Smokies, um, but t- tell me about the, like the first LP investor. You had to decide to invest with Joe Fairless. So wh- why, why do that instead of continuing to invest in your own deals? Part of it was actually, and, and I, I am going to save some of your listeners a huge amount of money today, and they're going to be so happy they heard this podcast. I, you have no idea how many sophisticated investors get burned on this, myself included. So I had decided to shift some of my 401k or IRA money. And you can only, if you're going to self-direct that, you can only self-direct that into other people's deals. So you can't put that into your own deals. And the way I'm going to save some of your listeners money is whatever you do, do not ever convert anything to a Roth IRA. If it's not in a Roth IRA, you can convert it to a self-directed 401k, a self-directed Roth 401k, but a Roth IRA can never get undone and you have UBIT tax on the leveraged portion of the investment. And I didn't know that. So I actually, I invested with Joe Fairless with my Roth IRA money and they kept sending me these K-1s and I kept throwing in the trash. It's a Roth IRA. I don't have to pay any money on this. And then I talked to a lawyer and they're like, oh dude, you have to pay tax on that. I'm like, what? This is crazy. Why would I have to pay tax on a Roth IRA? They go, if you would have done a Roth 401k and I'm like, can I convert it over? And I mean, I've talked to many people and like, you can't convert it over. So do not, whatever you do, like, and the thing is, like, if you have a 401k or an IRA, you can move both of those into Roth 401ks and your other piece of, your other piece of unsolicited financial advice is if you ever are going to take money out, I had another friend that shall remain nameless. You have met him though, but I, you, I, but I will never tell you who it is. He ended up moving. He ended up deciding he was going to pull all his 401k money and invest in real estate. And he took 1.4 million out of his 401k and he properly deployed it and is doing really well. The mistake he made is he did not convert, take one extra day and convert to a Roth 401k first. You can always go from a 401k to a Roth 401k and it has a one point, and in that case, it would have been 1.4 million taxable event. But because he pulled it out directly, there was a 10% penalty attached to that. Wow. So it cost him 140000 So congratulations, you just saved $140,000. Yeah, expensive. If that's expensive. your situation. Yeah. Okay, so, so, so what I'm hearing is at some point, you learned about these other asset classes. You wanted to do a self-directed IRA. Um, and And then instead of putting that in the in, in other index funds, you wanted to diversify away into other people's deals because that was kind of the only opportunity you really had. And I thought they would outperform S&P 500. I thought it would do better than 7% to go into some of the hotter ass, to go into some of the hotter markets. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so now that you've uh, made that transition at some point, like what was actually, what was your thought process investing in that first deal? I mean, one of the things was, is you wanted to be able to strangle the person and, and, uh, you publicly. know, sh- uh, publicly <laughs> if, if things went sideways. Um, but, but there's still some sort of apprehension whenever you get into your first deal. Do you think you can talk to, to that? Yeah. So it was one, the public, the public thing. The second thing is I'm not investing with anybody unless they have at least like five deals. And he was on deal seven and he had a track record. And we had talked a little bit before the podcast started. I asked him, have you, what's the worst deal that you ever did? And he said, my first deal. And I said, what happened? And he said, I bought a place that had a bad foundation. It literally cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix the foundation. And I said, what did you you know, what did you do? What did you do for your investors? And he said, I made my investors whole. I told him I was going to pay them and I paid them. He said, I literally made no money on that deal. And that, and I want to actually talk a little bit to the, to people considering being the GP on deals in the future. The thing that you truly have, if you don't need the money, now the contract says you can take your 30%. But in reality, that 30% is 30% insurance. That if you screw up the deal or something pops up that you don't think, you can actually take, you're not required to take the 30%. You can make your LPs whole and keep your reputation. And that I would like to think that any deal that I would end up doing, that I would have that buffer to make sure that everybody's whole, right? I would rather have my reputation and not worry about somebody not getting their money back. I think the other thing too is when I was doing it, I was doing it in smaller chunks. The Joe Fairless thing was 50,000. I've done 100,000, other stuff like that. And I think the other thing that's really important that I heard from another investor is never invest more than 5% of your net worth in any deal. You don't want to sink your, you know, oh, this is the deal. This is, I'm betting everything on red. No, really bad idea. Don't bet everything on red. 5% on red at the most. Yeah, so I think you you hit on an important point here, uh, which is, uh, you know, part of the due diligence process when you're talking to uh, sponsors or general partners about uh, a particular deal is asking them when deals have gone sideways and what have they done in that instance, and and I think you're very uh, right. It's it's uh, you either will find uh, general partners who are short sighted and. Uh, you know, we'll still take their fees, even if they lose a good chunk of investor capital. But I think the, the good ones or the great ones understand that if, if you have a bad deal with your investors, that it's pr- probably pretty impossible for you to raise money from any of those investors again. And so finding, finding those people who think longer term and say, Hey, look, I'd rather not take my, my carry as a general partner on this deal and, um, you know, make my investors whole because I know that that will lead to them investing with me again in the future and trusting me throughout the process. And that's what Joe said to me. He said, I would much rather keep everybody happy going forward. So what that implied to me, and, and of course, it you know wouldn't have been enforceable by law, is if another deal went bad, he was going to pitch in part of his money to make my side of the street right. And I appreciated that, and I like that. Yeah. Do you, out of all the GPs that you talk to in deals, do you, do you feel that that um, that that is how it would play out, or 
I don't talk to that many GPs. One of the things, though, that, you know, one of the things that you find out when you go to real estate conferences is when you're at lunch or dinner with a bunch of new guys, you get to hear all the horror stories. And like, like there was easily a million dollars lost uh, during lunch and dinner at best ever conference by people investing with suboptimal GPs that just like had no idea what they're doing, took the money. But I mean, most of the time it isn't even like they're, they're not even criminals. They're just incompetent. I mean, in the amount of people out there and it's, there's so many, oh, it, it is, I, I have a way, even some of the stuff I've invested in makes me a little nervous now because they just, you get more knowledge as you keep going on. I mean, fully, fully, fully bet. I want a super big track record of anybody in the future that ever does anything, right? And, and what's the worst case and show me the numbers and all that stuff. Yeah. What are the, what are some of those things that you, you've maybe worry about or, or you said you just had this kind of new realization that as you learn more, what are those things? What are some of those things? Well, the, I mean, there's a friend of mine that gave somebody that invested in the city of Detroit, $80,000. And, and a lot of it is just what's their track record, not only on, not only on deals, but on communication. So he gave this guy, you know, 80,000 and for the first, you know, every quarter, the guy updated him. And then year two, like he heard nothing for a year and he calls the guy and he phones the guy and he texts the guy, nothing. And year three, he gets a letter from this guy and he opens the the letter and, the, and there's a check for more than $200,000. And he's like, I will never invest with that guy ever again. Like, it's all about the communication. I don't care that my money, it almost tripled. It wasn't exactly tripled, but not bad for three years and whatever. But he's like, you know, there's just so many other things like, and, and there's a really interesting um, website called 506 Investors Group. I think I mentioned it to you yeah, before. And yeah, I mean, and that's, you, you can see all sorts of horror stories and you can see how those guys vet. And I am certainly not an expert in vetting, but I would say go to that group and see how those guys vet and see what deals they like and what they don't. And then the other thing is you go in that group and you can see you know, when that same company did a deal 10 years ago, how did it do? Five years ago, how did it do? What did they do when things went wrong? So there is a history out there. It's just, if you don't know about like a group like that, you don't really, you're not aware of this. You're not aware that this history even exists. It's very, there's a whole lot of personalities that are just like, if you have that shiny sales pitch personality, oh, the poor guy's money's gone, right? And it isn't nearly as protected as it could be. Yeah. What does your process look like when you're, when you're looking at a deal? Well, I think it's mainly betting on, on the jockey instead of the horse. And then there's going through the, going through the, the offering and making sure that things look like they're right. And then I'll normally ask a couple of questions. Quite honestly, I'm, I'm not, I'm unhappy with my deal analysis. Uh, I'm still betting more on the guys that are doing it and their track record in doing it, which again, I don't think that's the best way to do it. So they should probably do something else other than what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. But, but, but learn from me. Don't just bet on the shiny penny guy that has no track record or that, you know, that is, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. So in 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 this instance with uh, this land deal that you were talking about in in Colorado Springs, are, are, is this kind of like an operator who has a history of doing this, or have you have you done these kind of deals before? I'm doing a development in the Smokies, and that's what let me know. That's what gave me the confidence to invest in this deal. So this deal is way riskier than add some countertops, add some new appliances, double the rent. You know, it hasn't been done since the 70s. Get rid of the pink tile, the Pepto-Bismol pink tile and make it gray and it'll be a lot better, right? So one of the deals that I ended up doing in the Smokies was a development and basically Ended up getting 21 acres. It's a ridge on a mountain. Most incredible Smoky Mountain views. Like Smoky Mountains are right in your face. Normally, they're like kind of in the background, four or five miles away. This is like a mile away, just east of Gatlinburg. Just amazing. And we get this 21 acres under contract. And, and you know, a couple really interesting things about that deal is, one, is it was 100% owner financed. So I'm literally $3,000 all in on this deal. And then two, at the closing table, we find out there's actually four one-acre plats that have already been platted off from this 21 acres. What we are plats? We to, plats just mean you can build something on it. So it's a little one-acre little piece that's already Like a parcel the, or something. Oh, like a parcel, yeah. exactly. And basically, and these are touching this neighborhood that are that's right next to ours. So there's three on one dead end. There's one on the other dead end. So I'm like, guys, and, and we paid for the land, like there was not those plats. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, I at closing, they pull out a different blueprint of the land. And I'm like, dude, there's these things here. This is pretty awesome. So we take these three or we take these four plats and basically you have to get them surveyed, which is 1200 a piece. And then you have to get a septic permit on them, which is 300 a piece. So we're 6,000 all in on four plats. And we end up getting an unsolicited offer on those plats and we were going to build on them and somebody else came in and said hey I, we would like to build on them can we make an unsolicited offer i said fine and they offered about 15 percent more than we paid for all 21 acres so we're so it's like life is good we got that you know so bottom line is we we absolutely sold those and then we used the rest of that money to develop the remainder of it and we're just about set to come out with the other parcels or plats on the rest of the 17 acres that we still own and we still have the best stuff, which is the Ridge. And there, there's a couple other things, but bottom line is I understood that process of when you have a piece of dirt, what can you do with it? You might not be able to do anything with it. You might, there, you know, you might not be water on it. You, you know, one of the things I learned is there's seven different names for seven different, really fancy names for dirt. And Three or four of the names means it perks fine. And three of the other names means it's like clay and you can't put in a septic system. So you might get a two bedroom or you might get a six and a six is worth way more than a two. So, you know, I'm getting all this education on this project. And quite honestly, if I knew what I knew now, I would have never done that project. Way too risky, that development. And there's two or three things that they all fell in our favor and it's going to end up being amazing. But looking back on it, I had no business and I was a partner. And so it wasn't like all my risk. And I went along a lot with these other guys, but it ended up, you know, it ended up going amazingly well. And I would do it again, but I would be, have much more information that I have now. I got way educated on it, which is awesome. So this, so basically that experience just helped you understand a lot more about how you could buy a piece of land like this, you know, 
10,000 acres in Colorado Springs and then kind of flip that, add in sewage, add in like electrical lines so that the city could potentially then build whole new communities and, and, uh, and basically make that land a lot more valuable. Exactly. And in that particular case, the, the other thing that, the other thing that that particular deal had going for it is Colorado Springs, you know, Colorado Springs is there. Then this land is to the east. Well, just to the south of the land is where they're having to put their water reservoirs for the city. So the water reservoirs are going to have to kind of run through this land. So it's, it isn't like we have no idea where the water will come from. It's like, I don't know, reservoirs are closer to this, <laughs> this vacant parcel than this other stuff, right? Uh, so there's, there's certainly some advantages that it has of the water is going to be right there. It, it would be easy enough for you guys to annex this. It isn't like it's going to cost a ton of money to put in infrastructure, stuff like that. When you're, when you're investing, uh, are you looking for a particular type of deal? Like, are you looking for things that cash flow or things that are strictly equity growth? Uh, or, or is it based on just, you know, the operator and the deals that you come across? That's an excellent question. And I really think that a lot of people get something in their head. I, I think there's a lot of people that say other people are doing this, so I should do this. And when I originally started to invest in 2018, I had one goal and one goal only. Replace my engineering income, I wanted cash flow. But when you find really good cash flow, there's only one thing that can happen, really good appreciation. So my net worth has gone up way more from appreciation and finding the great cash flow. So right now, I don't care about cash flow anymore per se because I want appreciation because I know that I can increase my net worth way more from appreciation than I ever will from cash flow. But now the corollary of that is if there's really good cash flow, then there's really good appreciation. And other people say, I don't need 65%. I'll do 50 or 40 or 35 or 30 or, you know, and that's why a lot of the stuff I bought you know, more than doubled in value and close to tripled in a lot of cases. So you're trying to find deals. Uh, so you're not investing in like an oil and gas deal where you invest once and it spits off cash over a period of time. You're more interested in, in hard assets where it might, it has a cash flow component. Um, and uh, you know, then you're, you're betting on the equity growth. Right. Or no, the other half of that is, or it's some type of value add. So, you know, some of the self-storage deals we've been looking at are, you know, it, it it's really, there's no, there's no secret, you know, for the self-storage and value and triple net value adds that we're looking at, it's older guys or older people that are unfamiliar with the internet. They don't advertise on the internet. They've, you know, the broker isn't advertising. Like if you walk into that particular old broker's office and say, I'd like to know about any buildings you have. You'll find out if you don't walk into his office, he's, it's not on the internet and the self storage isn't on the internet. And it's like, okay, it's really easy to see, you know, the four other guys around here are all at 100 a unit and this guy's at 65, but he's 
deathly afraid to raise the rates because he's only at 65% occupancy. Well, that's because everybody else is going to the internet and finding some storage and nobody can find him because he's on a side street in the middle of nowhere, Ohio. Yeah, it's crazy to me that these these opportunities still exist. That's, you know, in multifamily, in self-storage, in mobile home parks, uh, it's still largely run by mobile home, like by mom and pop operators. And, but, but that window is going to close. I mean, I, I imagine this is probably one of the last decades where we'll be able to find those types of opportunities because they'll all have been flipped over uh, and bought by REITs. I think, yeah, I mean, on the bigger stuff, certainly. On the smaller stuff, I still think that goes on for another, I don't know, at least 15, 20 years would be my guess. Just There are just so many other people that are just, you know what? It's working fine. We're making plenty of money. There's, oh my gosh. I, I, <laughs> there's a guy, there's a guy I know that his, <laughs> if you, he has this incredible hotel in Florida and the only he doesn't have a website and his facebook page was last updated 3 years ago and the only way you can make a reservation is to call and leave a message and he only checks his messages once a day first thing in the morning so you can call and say can i come tomorrow well he won't call you back because you called at 9am and he already checked it at 8am and returned the calls and then guess what when you say can i do this you get a call back at 8am that says yeah, you could. And then that's it. And it hangs up. And then you, so it's like a four or five day. That stuff is out there. I mean, this is a, I'm just like, how do you even do this? Yeah. So but he's I'm, like, it's paid off, right? And he's making enough money. He's like, I'm paying for my food. I'm paying for whatever. I don't need to optimize anything. Yeah. So what I want to kind of point out here is for, for whoever's listening, it's, it's like when you're in, if you're new to these types of asset classes and if you're new to the terminology of value add, uh, the, this is very much like you're taking one of these old assets that Dave's giving all of these uh, examples on that's run by a mom and pop operator and just bringing it into the 21st century. I mean, a lot of those deals are like relatively safe as long as you don't do anything stupid like having a adjustable rate notes uh or mortgages <laughs> uh which has been um you know there are certain things that you need to look out for one of which is how how is how are the assets financed um and do they have adjustable rates because if if you have an operator that has an adjustable rate um and rates continue to go up. Uh, we're, st- I mean, we're already starting to see a lot of operators that did that over the last year and those assets turning upside down. But, um, uh, just wanted to make a point there and, and highlight, uh, those types of items to look for when looking at a deal. Uh, do you have any uh, additional comments to that? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of good deals coming up very shortly or exactly what you're talking about. The people that, Basically, you know, there, there's two different ways to value add. There's the slow way to value add is when people move out and you change out each apartment slowly and you're at 85% occupancy and you have some nice stabilized loan product. The way that you make a lot more money is as soon as everybody's lease is up, you kick everybody out, but then you have this bridge note thing that everybody's talking about now. And everybody's saying, well, I'll just refinance at three or four percent because it can't go up that fast in a year. And guess what? It did. And now and now not only is the interest rate going up, but as you're well aware, the amount of cash they'll give you on the building has gone down. So you're in this, basically, you, you're going to have a capital event and have to raise more money for something worse, less, or you're going to have to give it back to the bank. 
so I mean, there there's going to be a lot of great pain. And again, there's going to be a lot of operators that get burnt on this in the less... Again, I don't, I don't think they had any criminal intent. They just, hey, I did this since, you know, 2016, 2017. I've been doing this. I could take four years or three years to reposition a building, or I can do it in one. Why wouldn't I do it in one and make three times the money? And it works great until you hit the current situation, and now it doesn't work great anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the kind of the last questions I want to uh, maybe get from you here is, so I, the typical investor is one that uh, that would invest in funds uh, is someone who's kind of built some sort of degree of expertise to create cash flow for themselves. And now they have this extra cash flow coming in that they need to figure out how to place. Knowing that and knowing the, that the general consensus is that you should be investing in funds that give you access to expertise that falls outside of your own. Mm. Um, how should one assess whether a fund or a GP is a good fit or not without understanding that asset class or fund type? Well, that's a really good question. I think, you know, some of that goes to 506 investors group and some of their knowledge. I really like, you know, real estate expresso podcast daily dose. I really like the knowledge that's put out on that. And it's just, and and like we were talking about before the podcast, there's some things that I've invested in that I probably wouldn't invest in knowing now what I know. Very similar to the development that ended up coming out fine, but I it, way too risky not knowing the things that I didn't know. And you can only not know what, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. So at some point you have to take that leap of faith, whether it's talking to friends. And then it's, in my mind, it's almost, can you find somebody that can give you good feedback on why they think what they think. You know, I'm much more versed at helping people walk through this. I had somebody call me the other day and said, should I invest in this? And I said, I don't think I'd invest in this. I, I think I'd kind of wait and do this other thing. And it, oh, thank you so much. So it's like, do you have somebody like that that you can call? One of the other things I've seen is there's a lot of people that have a lot of success in certain areas in that confidence takes them into other areas that they maybe shouldn't be as confident in as they are, right? I'm good at this. And I was kind of like that, right? I think this works. And I mean, so far I've gotten, I'm someplace between good and lucky on everything so far. Uh, I lost $3,000 on one deal once a long time ago. So I'm somewhat risk adverse and I've been, you know, maybe dodging landmines. I don't know. But do you have somebody you can bounce it off of? I, I've heard multiple times people say, this was the deal I did and this is why it's going wrong. And can you help me? And I'm like, oh my, I really wish you would have talked to me before you went and did that deal. And so yeah. do you have somebody like that that you trust? Do you have a, a financial planner? Do you have somebody, another person? And I mean, certain people have, you know, we have a group that that we have a lot of people with a lot of knowledge in that we can talk to. Yeah, I know one of the things that people? we do. Yeah, one of the things that we do is we're in a couple different text threads together where, you know, people will post up deals. Hey, this is, you know, something I'm looking at investing into. What do you guys think? And some people will say, Oh, I like the deal because, you know, it's in a good area that has high population growth and it's got, you know, a solid operator with a great track record and the fees are good, but I don't like the deal because they have a, floating rate interest rate or they're you know right. i think that their leverage is too 
high. They have 80% leverage when I'm, I feel more comfortable with 65. And, um, and then I, I think it's really just listening to why uh, a lot of people don't like the deal. I, I think at least for me, you know, when we're in a lot of these threads or even different forums and groups, it's you're hearing other people's perspective about why they don't like the deal. And then I have a different viewpoint on the world and I don't have those same concerns. And so it's like, Oh, all the reasons you don't like the deal, I actually don't care. Uh, right. And, and I'm right. going to make that investment. Right. Yeah. Um, Dave, this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. This was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. All right. Take care, everyone.